Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf. I am in New York City, locked down in New York City, as I have been now for seven weeks, and I am joined... Um, from lockdown locations in our nation's capital by Corey Shockey of American Enterprise Institute. Hi, Corey. Hello, David. And Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And Edward G. Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Hello, David. So I'm going to do something I don't usually do. I, I like to sort of ask questions and step aside you know, most of the time. But but I'm, I want to start with a little something because I've been doing some research. I've been thinking about writing a piece. Um, and the piece I want to write is sort of about how there's, you know, people talk that we're, we're in one of those sort of epochal moments uh, that define a generation. Um, but I don't think we really know the character of this moment nor the degree to which it's going to define the generation. I think it's a little bit like, and I have not been in a battle, but it it seems to me it would be like entering a battlefield, knowing a big battle is about to take place, um, but not knowing exactly what's going to happen, what the costs are going to be, how long it's going to last, or what the final outcome is going to be. Um, and, And I say this because, you know, there's a lot of talk about the health side of this. And in fact, most of our episodes for the past month or two have focused on the health sides of this, and as I believe they should, and as as they will continue to do often. Um, And we can come back to those, but clearly if almost 3 million people have had this disease, if uh, we are approaching in the United States today or tomorrow, the next day, having had the same number of people die of this disease as who died in the Vietnam War, except that we lost them in a period of eight weeks and not not over the duration of a war. Um, uh, Europe arguably has been hit even harder than the United States, very serious outcomes there. But there are other outcomes, and we are just beginning to guess at what those outcomes are. And as we, we've discussed, you know, the St. Louis Fed said there might be 47 million unemployed and there might be 32% unemployment. And J.P. Morgan said we probably will contract by 40% in the U.S. in the second quarter. And Goldman said we'd be down by 6% uh, um, for 2020. But we're now starting to hear from other so um, uh, the, uh, an economist in the White House uh, said that, you know, this is the biggest negative shock that our economy has ever, this is the White House 
economists talking about it, has ever seen. Unemployment could be 16% hitting Great Depression levels. Uh, another economist at Capital Economics said unemployment will be up to 23% this month. 22 million have lost their jobs. Ken Rogoff at Harvard said, I feel like the 2008 financial crisis was just a dry run for this. This is already shaping up as the deepest dive on record for the global economy in over 100 years. The US, Europe, Canada, Japan, South Korea, Singapore, Brazil, Argentina, Mexico, all in recession. The global economy will shrink this year. Debts will go up in countries that have debts. The IMF has said that um, the, the, the uh, 2020 will contract uh, in one estimate, 3%. Another estimate uh, shows the US going down 6%, Europe going down 7.5%. Uh, just to put it in perspective, and I'll stop talking in a second, but just to put it in perspective, during the 2009 crisis, the global economy contracted 0.1%. Um, as we've seen, uh, uh, not just the U US is going to contract 40% in this quarter, Eurozone is going to contract 45%. The UK may contract 60%, 59.3% um, in this quarter. Um, in China, for the first time since they recorded records, starting with uh, uh, the Cultural Revolution, uh, they have had, it's in the first quarter, a contraction of 6.8%. Uh, and I can go through this. I mean, you know, the Latin America, uh, uh, is, is, is projecting its worst economic crisis ever. Africa, its worst economic crisis ever. We haven't seen these. These haven't really started yet, but they're sit projecting it. The ILO has said that COVID will wipe out the equivalent of 195 million jobs worldwide in the second quarter. This is of the jobs people count, not the informal sector jobs, the, the, the full number of jobs. Uh, and of course, we know all of these projections are based on incomplete information. Every single one of these projects a recovery later this year. Every single one does not project a second wave of this. They don't project a war or a drought or another um, famine. But the, the UN says that the number of people who are going to go without reliable food is going to go from about 130 million to 230. 65 million. There are already 821 million people who are chronically hungry. So this would put a billion people on the planet in dire situations. There are 55 countries at risk of being put into famine. Uh, and, you know, the normally dry readings of economists at places like the UN are not so dry anymore, including um, one that said that this is going to cause famines worldwide of biblical Proportion. So you have economic downturn, you have famine. You know, we've seen, by the way, in the past year, the worst desert locust droughts. Oh, de you desert locusts. You, you can stop trying to cheer me up now. I'm, I'm feeling fine. Thanks. I'm trying to get right to your level there, Rosa. <laughs> but, but I mean, but, but, and I could go on and I could go on. But all of these things themselves have consequences. And so you have, you know, Tom Cotton going on the television and saying, oh. This is China's fault. They, they caused all of this. They, you know, they have blood on their hands. And you can see a sort of a tide of U.S.-China tensions 
coming out of this. Uh, Venezuela is going to contract because it's an oil economy 18% over the course of this year. And it's already a fragile economy. Nigeria, oil economy, fragile economy, huge contractions coming. The Middle East, oil economies, fragile economies, huge contractions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All I'm trying to say is, you know, this and, and you know, the, the projections even from Hassett and the White House are that at the end of 2021, unemployment will be 9.6%, which was more than twice what it was before this thing started a couple of months ago. So this is not a two-month crisis. It's not going to take, I mean, even people talk about V-shaped recovery. It's not going to take, you know, four months and we'll be back to, you know, going gung-ho. This is going to take 18 months and is going to cause suffering of hundreds of millions of people and will be destabilizing in many political situations. And, you know, the question is, and this is where I stopped talking, but the question is in my mind, you know, what are the geopolitical consequences? You know, when we came out of the, the World War I and the Spanish flu uh, and entered into the Great Depression, you saw the rise of fascism in Europe, you saw the rise of the New Deal in the US, um, uh, you know, the end of World War I also brought with it Bolshevism and, and, and communism. Uh, events like this tend to trigger massive change. So should we expect that? Or, you know, am I I'm overstating it all? Corey. So you're not overstating it. In fact, I did notice um, that you understated the U.S. unemployment rate. It's now at least 15% um, and likely to get significantly worse. Uh, so no, you're not overstating the nature of the crisis. I struggle a little bit though, David, to suggest what it's all gonna mean because I think it's so much too soon to tell yet. So much depends on the capacity of governments to make smart choices the willingness of people to put up with restrictions, the ability of communities to come together and look after each other, the creativity to find a new economic ecosystem as the old economic ecosystem continues to constrict. Um, so, so yes, this is world changing and yes, this uh, is of enormous and consequential dimensions. But what those dimensions are or what that means, I think it's just so much too soon to tell. If you're a new listener to our podcast, please consider subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Deep State Radio, uh, or you can follow me at DJ Rothkopf. Uh, or on Facebook at Deep State Radio Network. If you're not a paying member, what is the matter with you? Become a paying member. I mean, you know, it's not free that we get to do this stuff. This is a remarkable show. It, you know, if you pay, the, what is the fee? It's like 60 bucks a year. It's five bucks a month. It's like one latte a month, if you remember what those are from the days when you could go out to Starbucks. But the point is, Please consider supporting our work by becoming a member. 
Members get to listen ad-free. They get discounts to events, and we've got some of those coming up. And we'll soon have access to our webinar series. To become a member, visit thedsrnetwork.com and click membership levels. Use code SUPPORT at checkout, and you'll get a 20% discount. I, I guess what I'm trying to sort of fumble around for is, you know, you're sort of in the crow's nest. The ship is moving across the sea. We see very rough seas ahead. You know, what direction should we be looking? What should we be looking for? What is the nature of the change? For those of you who are not yet enjoying watching this on on Zoom, as you may someday be, um, Rosa Brooks is holding up a little sailboat to illustrate my point and 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 and, th- and, just <laughs> and her point because it's capsized. Yeah, exactly. The, every the, the the outcry of people wanting to see this video is so great that it'll start in a few weeks. Meanwhile, Rosa, um, yes, puppet shows puppet shows aside, any thoughts on all this? No, I mean, I would echo Corey's. I I think it is absolutely, it is certain that this is going to create massive disruptions all over the world, not only economic, but but political and social. It is entirely uncertain precisely what form those will take, whether they will take a constant form all over or widely varying forms in different societies. I mean, just to to note a few of the, issues that could make a difference, right? So, so some of the trends that we're already seeing, we're seeing a rise in authoritarian and repressive forms of surveillance and control in immediate response to the pandemic in many states, um, in particular in Asia. We're seeing, it, it, which is using very sophisticated electronic forms of surveillance, we're seeing in other places um, sometimes places that are, are where, where high tech stuff has has spread less consistently through society. We're seeing in, insane overreactions by security forces. Um, you know, police beating stay-at-home order violators in, in India and some parts of Africa, etc. Um, I think we can expect that countries that trend authoritarian and repressive will continue to trend authoritarian and repressive. And the form that that takes will depend on the society. You know, the the high-tech societies, it'll take a high-tech form. The low-tech societies, they'll take the form of tear gas and billy clubs and bullets. Um, uh, I doubt that that is going to change dramatically, even if and when the pandemic itself recedes, because governments that are using power never to see a differential impact of the virus itself on uh, countries where a significant percentage of the population lives in megacities. Um, I'm sure you all saw there was an interesting piece in the New York Times this morning on the ways in which uh, population density not not only increases infection rate, but increases the death rate. And the reason for that being that you know, density just means that people are more likely to infect each other, but density also means that each person who gets infected is more likely to be exposed to a, a higher viral load. They're not just getting exposed, you know, once briefly, they're getting exposed probably over and over and over again by many, many people. And the amount of virus to which you're exposed has an impact on how sick you get and whether you're likely to die. And that what that means is that for a country, you know, and that's the reason, obviously, that in New York City, we're seeing a a, both infection rates and death rates that dwarf those we've seen elsewhere in the country. Um, but it also means that in countries, whether it's Lagos or the megacities of China and other parts of Asia, megacities in other parts of Africa, I think we're, we're likely to see 
a really catastrophic toll. Um, and when it comes to megacities in uh, places like Lagos, for instance, you have a much higher percentage of people who, to make things even worse, don't have reliable access to clean running water, sanitation, and so on. So I think that in countries with high population percentages in really dense megacities, particularly those with poor sanitation, you're going to see just massive death rates, whereas more rural uh, countries, including rural poor countries, may actually have much less of a sort of immediate viral impact in terms of in terms of death rates. How that is going to play out in terms of political unrest and so on, who the heck knows? I, I don't think any of us have any idea at this point. You know, and I and I we've talked about this a little bit before in the context of the U.S. I think I think this could push in one of two quite different directions. One possibility is a very dark direction of more repression, more civil unrest, more really bad stuff, more essentially the U.S. Uh, manifesting, uh, if not extreme state failure and collapse, uh, state state falling apartness to a significant degree. We're already seeing some of that. Um, but on the other side, you know, the the bright side could be that the the shock of this leads to a new social contract, much as the Great Depression led to the New Deal. Uh, and you actually see a, you know, ultimately a much better society rising out of the ashes of this with more transparency, more equality oriented or inequality remedying types of economic plans, you know, more infrastructure spending and investment. Uh, and at this point, as Corey said, I think we, we just don't know. It's too soon to say. But I think that, you know, the exercise is probably a valuable one to go through, too, because the choices we make now both in this country and, and globally, will have an impact on the likelihood that we get some of the better futures or the worst futures. Right, absolutely right. And by the way, of course, what happened in the wake of the world, First World War and the Great Depression was you got both, right? You got the right, rise of fascism absolutely. in Europe and, and yes. you had the rise of the New Deal in the US. Uh, Ed? Um, I mean, I think sort of running with your economic um, your very bleak economic sketch. Clearly, this is going to hit the developing world worse, far, far worse economically, uh, as well as eventually um, um, epidemiologically um, than the rest of the world. We've got it bad, but we've got cushions that, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, elsewhere, parts of Latin America can only dream of. Um, there's going to be a collapse in commodity prices. There is already a collapse in commodity prices, not just oil, but across the board, um, which is what most of the um, export-oriented emerging markets rely on for their dollars. And so that revenue model is going to collapse. Um, aid is going to be very, very difficult um, to get to replace it because there's going to be waning appetite with austerity, as far as the eye can see. Um, amongst the developed nations and China itself, which has been stepping into um, some of the uh, retreating shoes of the West in the last decade, is also um, going, going to go through a period of, of, of real stringency. Its economy is export oriented. Nobody's buying. Um, so I think that uh, the human toll, the reversal of human development gains, millennium development achievement, gold achievements that we've seen in the last 20 years is going to be quite rapid um, and it's going to be very destabilizing. Uh, the one sort of silver lining there in terms of politics in the developing world is that when oil prices collapse, 
regimes tend to want to share power. They can't buy off people in the way they used to. So I, I, you know, I think MBS in Saudi Arabia, for example, is going to become a bit less repressive. I think Putin is going to become a bit le less repressive. Petro states are more autocratic when the oil price is high. Uh, and that, that tends to be a fairly stable pattern. Um, the pressure on migration from south to north is going to grow hugely. Um, and that's principally going to be towards Europe. Um, but of course, there'll, 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 be some, there'll, be, there'll be some southward attempts, new attempts, uh, whether Trump calls them caravans or not, I don't know, to come up to the US-Mexico border, but that's, that's more sealed than it used to be. Um, so I think the pressure on Europe in terms of migration is going to get huge. Um, I think the support for having a fortress Europe for having a strengthened Frontex, which is a European um, border agency, is going to grow. It's, it's disturbing to see that the far right have not lost any support in the last four to six weeks um, in Europe so far. Um, and so that anti-immigrant sentiment is going to be tested to the extreme in the next two, three years um, by the greater flood of economic migration. Uh, what I would say about the economy more broadly, globally, uh, is what this has done for companies, for organizations, across the board, for governments as well, is dramatically accelerate the digitalization of organizations and of work. Uh, and it's dramatically raised the attractiveness of capital-intensive investment versus labor-intensive investment. In other words, you know, robots don't give each other infections. Um, humans do. Robots don't require health insurance. Robots don't require pension schemes. Um, so I think that the, the um, labor saving investments by big companies is going, to be, is going to be huge. I think big companies are going to get bigger. Um, smaller ones just have less of a cushion. They're going to go bankrupt. They're going to get snapped up. Um, I think the winner takes all model is going to get stronger. And so I think the pressure from below in Western democracies in America and elsewhere from the precariat, from insecure workers to get better protections um, uh, from, um, from the public sector, from, from, from government is going to become very strong. And that's where, you know, that's where this forked road that Rosa mentioned um, between does this, does this result in lower inequality or higher inequality? I, I share uh, her ambivalence about knowing the outcome to that, but I do know that the pressure from below is going to get very, very strong. Um, that can go in a New Deal direction and it can go in a fascist direction. We, we don't know. History, as you say, points both ways. So, Corey, you may want to respond to any of that. But as I listen to it, one of the areas we've touched upon this in past conversations is that if you look to the great powers or the greater powers, there has been a real leadership failure across the board. US, UK, um, Russia, India, Brazil, China, Japan. Um, and, you know, th this, of course, 
you know, you know, the world's a complex system, but the, the, the bigger, more powerful actors have, have somewhat of a greater impact on the outcomes. Um, and, you know, for example, you know, China has never, I mean, during the Tiananmen, during uh, the 2008, 2009, it's never had negative growth. It's never been in an Asia, I mean, in this period, it's never been in an Asia that has had zero growth. Um, and, you know, the U.S. is looking for somebody to blame, you know, so you could see a potential problem emerging there. Uh, other people blame, cast blame elsewhere for, for, for their own reasons. You could see problems emerging there. As you look at the great powers and how they're affected by this, do you see areas where you sort of circle that and say, I got to keep watching it? Uh, sure. Um, for all the reasons you suggest, David, I, uh, I couldn't resist smirking when you said China for the first time has experienced negative growth because uh, among the things that has been hammered home to all of us during this pandemic is that China's self-reported data is utterly unreliable. There are evidently zero cases of COVID-19 infection in the entirety of the Chinese People's Liberation Army. And that strains credulity, as does a whole bunch of other stuff that they are saying. No, no question about it. But during 2008, 2000, during 2008, 2009, their growth was reported at 9%. So, you know, it's like, was it 9%? Probably not. Was it minus 1%? Probably not. So... I think you can guess that it was probably net positive. That's all. Um, what I was going to say was, I don't think you have to be Tom Cotton uh, to see the difference in types of great powers. Namely that the president of the United States talks dangerous nonsense and is countered by governors of states affected, countered by public health experts, sometimes even at his own White House press conferences, is countered by the Lysol company issuing safety warnings uh, to negate the effect of the president's ridiculous, dangerous nonsense. And you don't see that happening in China. So uh, tensions are going up among great powers, as you suggest. But also we are seeing a striking uh, reminder of why free societies tend to be less of a danger in the international order, tend to be more forces for stability than for negative change because they are shackled to public opinion. They there are the opportunities for public exposure. Now that doesn't mean they're any better governed as we are ourselves demonstrating. But I think the way I would bet my money is that free societies are slow and gainly um, to get themselves concentrated and organized. Alexander Nazarenin has a really nice piece in the Washington Post uh, about the United States and the comparison that many people are making to Chernobyl ending the Soviet Union. And, and he, as a former Soviet citizen and now American citizen, does, uh, feels that the difference is social resilience and civil society 
and that really feels true to me. It, so free societies are bad at lots of stuff, but what we're good at is slowly mobilizing ourselves to better solutions. And we're only two or three months into this so far. And so I think free societies aren't showing to great effect yet, but are likely to show to much more positive effect. And just to close on the China point, you know, I think once again, the Americans should take our direction from the government of Australia, um, which was in its own gentle diplomatic way suggesting that all of us have a reckoning coming um, about the COVID crisis, and maybe we should look into where this started and are already subject to uh, commercial bans being threatened by the government of China for that. So what free societies can do is bear the exposure of sunlight. And that's likely to, and they have the means through elections and other recourse like the rule of law to hold people accountable. And I think over time that's gonna to show to much stronger, more positive effect. Well, I, it's hard to argue with any of that, but if, uh, you know, I, I know that among the many overdeveloped parts of Rosa's brain, um, there is a, an area in their frontal cortex called the yes, but cortex. And so she, she's able to hear all of that kind of thing. And then she will go, yes, but is that, am I sensing this wrong? I mean, no, you are exactly right as usual, David. Yeah. So Rosa. No, 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 but yes. What Corey said. So you I don't have, any, your, you, your you don't, you don't, you don't feel that, Free societies can go the wrong way. You don't want to make the point about Hitler having been elected. Okay. You don't, okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I mean, there there is no guarantee that a free society stays free. Um, we've we've seen free societies become less free. In fact, we were already seeing a gradual trend in the last fifteen years towards uh, you know when you look at sort of Freedom House's annual index of free societies, the trend was going in a bad direction. Uh, for the last, you know, near decade, um, and I don't, I don't, I certainly don't have any. There's, there is no guarantee. I think, I think Corey is right that free societies are m more likely to be able to pull off the hat trick of emerging from this without as much damage. I don't think it's a guarantee, but I. So this is not even much of a but because I basically do agree with Corey. Uh, I think we're in a much stronger position than societies that are more repressive. Although Rosa brought up some of the areas where authoritarian states may be using new technologies, and Ed, you brought up new uh, uh, technologies and the acceleration of technology. And you know, one of the things that I, I wonder is, you know, as this crisis passes and brick and mortar retail stores go the way of other stores, and it becomes more e-commerce and um, uh, there's more in the way of surveillance and, uh, uh, you know, it, it could be possible that as, as Rosa points out, you know, every restaurant has to take your temperature every time you walk in and vast databases of people's health start being built up and vast new threats to privacy, which are already great, continue to grow. And, you know, this other 
kind of amazing revolution has happened, which is the average citizen sitting at home with the average cell phone can produce a broadcast right now that's exactly the same in terms of technical quality as the broadcast produced by a major television news network and technically can reach as many people. So the process that we've seen of the proliferation of media sources uh, and their specialization to unique audiences, which has this atomizing effect, that could accelerate too. So, you know, we look, we tend to look at the geopolitical side, Ed, but what I'm getting at is the tech side may be just as disturbing. Yeah, the quality of the makeup room isn't quite as high uh, as it is in the TV studios. Here, um, here, here at Deep State Radio. Yeah, exactly. I, I think you can do better, David. Um, uh, no, not, not in terms of your, no, no, forget it. I'm sorry, I'm going to start digging deeper. Um, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, that, but, by I mean, the way, uh, is the role that David Sanger usually plays. And we'll have him late, later in the week. We'll do a show. We're going to do a show that's all North Korea, the whole show. And Sanger will be. Well, that that will be an interesting um, one. But, I mean, the cliche in about global supply chains <clears throat> is that we're moving from the just in uh, the just in time model to the just in case model, which is a very different logic. Um, just in time is stretched thin, highly efficient, no wastage, inventory in, inventories at the lowest level, to a safety model from an efficiency to a safety model, a just in case model, where um, you know we have stockpiles. Um, where we don't rely on China. People talk about deglobalization. What they mean is de-silification. Um, they, they want a more diverse global supply chain. And they don't want it all in China. They don't want all their eggs in that basket. Um, I think, you know, the digitalization, the, tech, the technology element that you're talking about is very important. But I think that the de-silification element and what that means in terms of how we view economies is, is uh, potentially just as important. Um, you know, people, a year ago, when Elizabeth Warren brought up industrial policy, most people, most economists groaned. Now they're all flocking to that field. That's, that's suddenly an important field again. It's, well, okay, let's look at the economy in terms of people's feeling of security, including national security, not just uh, in terms of which can deliver the lowest prices. Um, technology, of course, uh, does deliver extremely low prices. Um, um, and that's, you know, a different trend and it's a very important one. And all the implications of that are, are, are well worth discussing. You know, the fact that my parents can propose a Zoom call um, uh, and, you know, send a Zoom invite. The fact that they could do that when they never would have done that prior to prior to this situation is to me a sort of microcosm of what's exploding everywhere. Um, but I think there are other economic um, impacts and implications of this that are really quite far-reaching and, sorry to use Germanic phrases, but paradigm shifting. Um, yeah, although, you know, you must say with the amount of progress we're making technologically, you would think that they could develop an ear pod that would fit in your fucking ear, right? Yeah. Because these things fall out constantly. They do. And I mean, which is why you're wearing sort of 20th century headphones for the I'm, benefit of listening. No, these are very yeah, fancy. Yeah, the contact tracing algorithm, David. 
yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, but well, you know, one other thing as we sort of come around, we've got we five ten minutes ago. But it, another thing that comes out of all of this in my mind is, you know, particularly if you're a millennial. Um, are any of us millennials by definite? Any? No. Sadly, no. No. But if you're a millennial and you're going through this in your 30s, will you ever, if you have the choice, not set aside some money to protect yourself against a shock? I mean, will you ever view the world as you did before, which is kind of shock resistant or or that that's unlikely? I don't think that millennials actually viewed it that way to start with. I mean, the, the data on economic insecurity amongst millennials suggests that even before this, millennials far more than Gen Xers and older, uh, millennials were really being hit very hard. They were hit very hard by the last financial crisis. Uh, they are much less likely than slight, even slightly older generations such as Gen X to have nest eggs. So I, I don't, I, I think that, I'm not sure I would say that that generation ever had that level of faith. It may be, it may be us and older. Well, maybe I'm just, I'm just, what I'm getting at is resilience matters. And what we've discovered, Corey, is that, um, you know, in a country where 40% of the people have 400 bucks in savings, that's a social problem. It's a national security problem. If part of that society collapses, uh, you know, the entire global economy was built on certain assumptions. You know, one of those assumptions was we had never, ever in our history had a major um, reversal in both since, well, certainly since the Great Depression, in both the developed world and the emerging world at the same time. You know, that if, if, so, so for most of modern history, you've had some activity someplace. We don't. So the question is, how, I mean, are we going to value resilience or are we going to be so impoverished by this that that's a luxury we can't afford? Of course. I vote value resilience. <laughs> I, well, I would, I would, I would, I would hope so. Um, but that, you know, there. I wanted to make a point about Rose's very good point about um, millennial views. Because when we did the YouGov surveys for Warriors and Citizens, a book that Rosa wrote a terrific chapter in, um, the, the most anomalous thing about the data was that the attitudes of people under 30 were much closer to the attitudes of survivors of the Great Depression and World War II. Because of September 11th and the 2008 financial crisis, the world felt fundamentally unsafe to them, economically and militarily. You could already see that as early as 2014, which is when we did the surveys. And I think you're right, David, that this is gonna strongly accelerate it. My only hope is that it will build a reservoir of goodwill whereby people who are older than millennials won't condescend to them by saying things like they can't afford house mortgages because they eat avocado toast. Yeah, no, you should never, should never say that. Um, Rosa, what about yes. these, these kind of... Do you want me to comment on avocado toast? It's avocado toast, but I was also just sort I of thinking of these, these kind of attitudinal changes, these kind of social... Yeah changes that that you know that affect an outlook 
Yeah, no, I think they're going to be enormous. And, and I'm thinking even about younger generations than the millennials, like my two teenage daughters. Uh, uh, you know, I think, I think kids younger, significantly younger than them, if things go back to normal, it may be a little bit different. But for the, for the kids who are, who are in their late teens through early 20s, and I guess those are Gen Zs mostly, you know, kids who, are, who would be graduating from high school or college this year, who are going to face radical immediate disruptions to their plans to start the next phase of their lives. Um, you know, the kids who've had graduations canceled, proms canceled, summer jobs canceled, maybe full-time jobs following graduation canceled. Um, you know, those, those, that generation, and it's probably about, you know, eight to 10 years worth of young people, I think they're going to be like depression babies um, in terms of the, you know, profound impact on their trust in government, on their level of financial anxiety, on the degree to which they take it for granted or not that the world is going to continue chugging along more or less as it has been previously. I think that I, you know, I, I look at my kids and I, you know, again, I think it partly depends how long it takes for things to quote unquote, get back to normal. You know, if it's, by some miracle, which won't happen, you know, two weeks from now, everything's quote unquote back to normal. Maybe the long-term impact on, on that sort of generational psychology is relatively minimal. You know, if it's, if it's three months, six months or longer, it's going to be extremely profound. And I, you know, I think about my own now deceased grandparents um, who came to young adulthood during the great depression and how profoundly that impacted their way of looking at the world just across every possible dimension. Um, and I think we're going to see something similar with, with the generation that's sort of coming of age right now. Interesting. Ed, you have a little girl who's younger than that. 13 and also um, Generation Z or Z, as you so quaintly call it. Z, Z, she she says Z for me and Z for everyone else. So she sort of she customizes her pronunciation depending on who's in the shot. Um, I don't have um, any great insight to add to that. I mean, it's clearly you know, except that us Generation Xers, I think have also um, have also got things to worry about to the extent you know, if you look at the numbers about people's um, savings um, for retirement. If you look at those aged between 50 and 64, these are really dire numbers and their, and their retirement is imminent. And um, they, were, they were bad before coronavirus hit. They're now you know, shot to pieces and they've got less time to make up their portfolios. You know, if this is a two, three, four year thing, I mean, say you get the vaccine in 18 months, which is a good case scenario. Um, it's still going to be two to three years before we're back to the economic level that we that we were in March 2020. Um, so it's going to be it's going to be very tough across all generations, I think. Um, uh, and I have to say, I think millennials ought to be feeling at one nowadays with uh, with baby boomers and the greatest generation. If you look at the poll numbers, Trump has gone from a 19 point advantage over Biden to a minus one advantage. It turns out that, you know, uh, herd immunity is not a vote winner amongst geriatrics. <laughs> Why are you looking at me when you say that? <laughs> How do you know who I'm looking at? Can I mention one point about technology? Yeah. Zoom, it's more difficult to interrupt on Zoom 
than it is on the telephone. Why do you say that? On conference calls. It's something about the Zoom audio technology. I like that. Oh, I don't. <laughs> this explains why we're not doing this by phone anymore. David, yeah. was <laughs> down on all of us interrupting. Yeah, no, it's actually not. I To me... You know, I don't. I don't know how much the the listeners are are interested in this, but to me, doing it on Zoom and being able to see your faces makes it so much more natural and conversational. And you know, if Corey winces or Rosa starts playing with her sailboat, or you know, Ed turns his screen off, which means he's going to get a cup of coffee, I know what's going on better, and I think it just makes it a lot more natural. Although, Corey, I, I will ask for the benefit of the audience that cannot see this yet, although in future perhaps they will, what is the screenshot behind your head? Uh, it is a picture I took of an exhibit about 10 years ago at the Cooper Hewitt Museum in New York that was about tools. And it's a whole bunch of tools suspended, but it does have a kind of... Um, Star Wars, we're, we're heading into hyperspace kind of feel to it, and a sort of certain undercurrent of Dark Lord of the Sithness, both of which I was really going for. I totally get that. I got That's what I got out of it, was Dark Lord of the Sithness. Well, I folks, like it. Yeah, no, I, I like it too. It's very uh, intimidating and, um, and, and effective. Uh, so, folks, in future few weeks from now, perhaps, we'll uh, make some of these podcasts available to our members uh, So on video, so you can, you can watch them. Um, and of course, you'll see this coming week, as we did last week, that we're going to start doing more of the promotions using this video. Um, and we may even start doing some webinars in the next couple of weeks to bring in some of our experts and enable people to pose questions to them, so we can actually create interactive fora for our members so you can say to you know ask the questions on your mind about coronavirus or the coming financial collapse or um you know where Roy's, rosa gets her toy boats you know also also could be on people's mind um so keep an eye out for that go to the dsrnetwork.com you'll be able to get more information on it there or follow us on twitter at deep state radio or follow any of us on uh, Twitter, and we'll be back with you uh, later this week. I think we've got a special episode coming up uh, this week, which is an interview with a very senior member of Congress. And uh, and then on Thursday, we'll have one that's a little bit more health-oriented on uh, coronavirus, uh, also, I think, with a member of Congress. So we've got a lot of interesting things coming up. Please join us for those, and please join me in thanking Corey Shockey, Rosa Brooks, and Ed Luce, very much. Bye.